Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here for this episode of Grief is My Side Hustle. Today, we're talking with Inez Ribostello, who was a employee at Windows in the World, which was the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center. She talks to us about her book that she wrote to describe her experiences on that day. And she also talks about how triggering the pandemic has been for her chosen field of restaurants. Thanks so much for being here. If you're enjoying the podcast and could give us a five-star rating on Apple, that helps everybody find us. Thanks so much. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I've been waiting to have this conversation. I'm really excited to introduce you to my guest, Inez Ribostello, who is the author of Life After Windows. Inez, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Megan. So great. So I would love to just start off with you telling my listeners how you come into the, the world of grief and loss and how you ended up writing your book. Sure. You know, I've been writing or, or journaling my entire life. And it just so happened that I was living my best life in New York City, you know, at the age of 25 with my dream job, which happened to be at the top of One World Trade Center. And I was employed there on 9-11. And so I, the, the day it happened, you know, the next day when I started writing in my journals, I, I took a new journal that I had and, and wrote LAW, which is, you know, Life After Windows, which was mm. this new person that I was because I had lost the person I had been for 25 years and yeah. she was never coming back. And so... I'm not sure I knew how to say I was grieving at yeah. that time of an age. Yeah. I know now. <laughs> and I have been writing or journaling, you know, for a long time. And I was very afraid of putting these words out there for a couple reasons. You know, one, I never wanted to trivialize what happened that day. And certainly that, you know, while I did lose many, many coworkers and, and my place, my, my, my place and, and, you know, the person I once was, I still was a survivor. Yeah. And so I had a lot of people encourage me to say, you know, if you, sh you should put it out there because you have a story and, and that story could help if it helps one person, it's worth putting out there. So. I say that a lot. I talk about sort of the gift of like, if every person who's ever grieved anything profound or anything small was to write the memoir of that story, we'd still need every other story because, you know, you know, I'm sure you read a book and it doesn't resonate and you read another book and you feel like you wrote it. And I think we're always looking to find ourselves and to help sort of process and move towards healing in the words that are there. And I love what you shared with us is you kind of always had writing as a tool. And in my experience as a, as a trauma therapist, people either have something in their back pocket, they already were a runner, they already knew they liked to cook, they already liked to garden, they row, whatever. And then they do more of that or that becomes the thing. Or 
they have to go find something brand new. And I have a lot of folks who come in and they're like, oh my God, Megan, have you ever done yoga? Because they'd never done yoga before, but there was something about the energy of being on the mat in a time where they really needed to be with their body and their body sensations around grief that was like transformative. Can you talk about like how you got to New York and how you got to Windows? I mean, one of the things about that, I ate there twice. So one of the things about that is like, to me, kind of like New York is, is another character in the show Sex and the City. I feel like it, it was an iconic restaurant and kind of like its own character. And so to me, to feel it like the loss, the way that you would feel, you know, a deep and profound loss of a person, not to mention you lost many colleagues and coworkers. Can you just give us the backstory of your relationship with it? Like yeah, how yeah. long had you been working there? What brought you to New York? All that stuff. Sure. So I moved up to New York the summer of 1998. I was 22 years old. I had never been north of the Mason-Dixon line and I was enrolling in culinary school on the Upper East Side. I was also following the guy that I dated for, for three years. As you do. Which we do. I had no real expectations of like, I was a journalism major. I thought, oh, I could be the next food and wine writer or sure. better yet, like host a show on the Food Network, but also was pretty comfortable with, I'll probably get an engagement ring too. So very, yeah. like very yeah. different. And when I was in culinary school, the first week I uh, walked into a wine store right outside the subway station and started browsing and was enamored with all the beautiful labels and all the descriptions. And the third day I went in, I was offered a job by the assistant, the assistant manager. Wow. I know I had on my houndstooth pants and my chef jacket from, from school. And she was a culinary grad. She happened to be a fellow Southerner. She was from Atlanta. And so for the next, you know, five and a half months, I'd get out of school and I'd go work retail in this wine shop from 5.15 to 10 to, to close. And, you know, no one had told me that you could make a career in wine. Yeah. And I read the New York Times every Wednesday religiously. Yep. And one Wednesday, there was an article on a woman named Andrea Emmer, who's now Andrea Emmer Robinson. She was a master sommelier and she was the beverage director at Windows on the World. And I cold called her. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I said, I want to, I want to be you. I'm sure she was like, okay, crazy. <laughs> but, <I'm here. laughs> but she told me to fax, fax me her resume. In the day. My resume. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I did. And, you know, it wasn't until February, like five and a half months later, that I got a phone call and she said they were opening up a new smaller a more intimate restaurant at the top of the world trade center where cellar in the sky used to be yeah. and they need a hostess. So of course I was like, wah, wah, wah. Right. But, um, that's not what I said. <laughs> not what I said. But my dad said, get up there and interview, you know, and, 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 and take the job. And, you know, eventually if they see how hard you'll work and, and, you know, how well you'll do at something you're not interested in doing, they'll believe, you know, how great you can be at something uh, you are. So the day I went up for the interview, an assistant seller master had resigned. They switched gears, asked me, would I like to interview for that position instead? I said, absolutely. And offered, called me the next evening, which was a Saturday night, and offered me the job. 
that was in March of 99 and just continued to move up the ranks from assistant wow. cellar master to beverage manager. And ultimately, um, January, I think it was 14th, 2001, I was promoted to beverage director, which was the, which is the, you know, the number one in the beverage department. Top of the top. Top of the top. And at this point I had gotten rid of the boyfriend from North Carolina, fallen in love a couple more times, but really my love was for the city. You know, mm-hmm. I was head over heels in love with New York and felt like, you know, my new parents were this, were this restaurant windows on the world yeah. the family that had so many different, you know, countries represented so many different religions represented so many different sociodynamics and you know we didn't just go in to work together but we went out together you know we celebrated birthdays together windows had this amazing employee cafeteria where that overlooked all three of the bridges on the east river and you know it was so it was such an intimate relationship with so many people that I ended up falling in love with the the sommelier who is now my husband oh my gosh (laughs) but yeah that that's how that's how the job came to be yeah Um, it's a pretty extraordinary story just to that and it reminds me just sort of of the like flexibility that that young adults have with their passions you know that that you can move to a new city and take a retail job after you go in there a couple of times and that sometimes that sort of like openness helps to double down and teach you about your loves and your trajectory. So, so you had been working there since 99 and met your husband there. So it does, it has this vibe to it, which feels very different than like sometimes when people are talking about being young and working at TGI Fridays, which is like complete chaos. It sounds like you joined like a beautiful little community. So what, what was your experience with the, the day itself and the loss as it sort of unfolded? So on September 5th, I'd flown home to be the maid of honor in my sister's wedding, which was on September 8th. Okay. And I come from a blended family. And if I had time with my father, I always had time with my mother, you know? And so my, while I was in the wedding on the eighth, on the ninth, my mother picked me up to go be with her for a couple of days. So my flight back to New York was on the morning of September 12th. And that's why I was not there. Wow. And my, my boyfriend, now husband was in Jersey city and was not slated to go in until noon on September 11th. So that's why he wasn't there. And, you know, windows on the world was primarily, well, it was a dinner destination. Yeah. People who were allowed to eat lunch and breakfast there were club members. Okay. But we still had many banquet rooms. Yeah. And certainly, you know, the accounting and we, we lost a lot of people that people didn't realize like work at a restaurant. Like we had a huge accounting department. We had a huge banquets department. We had a uniforms department. We had a shipping and receiving department. We actually occupied both the 106th and 107th floors of one world trade center. And then our, our seller, our main seller was at the bottom in port authority. Um, you know, at any given time, certainly at five o'clock in the evening, we'd have, depending on the, the time of year, 500 employees. Yeah. So at this time of day on a Tuesday morning, we had 85. 
Yeah. God, that's uh, still an extraordinary number. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. the grace of it not being 500 and at night, but 85 employees in one day is just, that's unbelievable. That's yeah. an unbelievable. Horrific. Yeah. So how did you actually hear the news? Were you with your family and, you know, awake and alert and got the, at a, did someone tell you like, how did, that's a lot to take in. Yeah. I was asleep in a, in a pitch dark bedroom with all the, with all the shades drawn yeah. and, and my mother, I woke up to my mother kneeling over me and she was sobbing and she said, can you come in and look at the television? And before that, when I first saw her, I immediately went to my grandmother. Yeah, of course. It happened to my grandmother. Yeah, of course. And I, I say this, I think just to put maybe perspective on the fact that how unbelievable this was. But when I went out to the television and, and at this point, only one plane had hit. Yeah. My first thought was, I just cleaned up the office. This is going to take me forever to clean back up. And, and I think that talks about two things, Megan. One is I was a child, really, you know, very naive. And, and then the other pieces, this isn't happening. Yeah. The shock, you know, that I could see where the plane had hit on television and still not thinking that anyone was in any danger, right? Just right. Cause they're going to get in the elevators or take the stairs. They're just going right. to go. Yeah. That, you know, it's such an interesting, and it, that's such an interesting piece to reflect on because I think there are some things, I mean, I, I do some lecture series on sort of like the things that are true of grievers. And I always ask people like, what was your logical thought? Mm-hmm. You know, what was the thing? And maybe even you have some shame about it. Like you have some energy about it. And I had a, a traumatic loss in my childhood. And when I learned that my cousin had drowned, my first thought was, am I still going to the sleepover? Yeah. Right. When my grandfather died, my, my first thought was like, who's going to drive me to or- high school orientation? And one of the things I teach people is like, listen, when you, when there is incongruous, shocking information in front of you, this part of your brain enlarges and actually impacts the flow of energy through your brain. And so you are not thinking the way you would normally think. And, and it's just your body trying to protect you. But most people don't go straight to linear, logical reasonable thinking. And I like how you have described it as like, well, and it's probably a reflection of your age, just an, an, you know, a not clear understanding. What you were worried about was the mess in the office. And it will be, you know, seven minutes before you come to understand that that's, yeah. yeah. So you sat there with your mom and watched that on television, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was, it was my mom and my sister and <coughs> her, her good friends and their children who were all adults. And at some point, my mother brought me the telephone. And I remember calling my boyfriend's apartment, which rang and rang and rang and rang. 
And then I'd hang up and I'd call my office, which went immediately to the busy signal. Yeah. And I was so frustrated about not getting, and you know, there were no cell, or I didn't have a cell phone, Yeah, but I had a beeper. Yep. And I finally called my friend on the Upper West Side who was born and raised in New York. She was about 10 years older than I was. She had worked at Windows, but no longer worked at Windows. And when I, when she answered, she was crying and I became so angry that she was crying. Like I wanted to get off the phone with her immediately. Yeah. Because she was a very strong person and, and a big role model in my life. And I'd never heard her cry. Huh. And then I'm hearing her cry and I, Scary. You know, the feelings of emotions. And, and I, I, I wrote about them because they are, and I, I so appreciate what you said, because they're very strange. You know, when I got home that day, you know, I, I said to my mom, I want to, I want to go home. And a woman whose boyfriend had worked in my department had been calling my grandmothers all morning. Oh, wow. She was trying to find out where her boyfriend was. Yeah. And Nana said, you got to call this woman back immediately. And so, you know, and you do you think about how panicked everybody was and just so, and, and there's nothing to compare it to. I There's mean, nothing. Pearl Harbor, maybe from, I think about my grandmother who had, had gone through Pearl Harbor, JFK being assassinated, you know, and then here she yes. is 9-11. But, but really this was quite shocking. You know, I, I don't even know another word. And yeah. I call, so I call this woman back and she sang to me, could Jeffrey have been anywhere besides on the top of the building? And I said, yes, he could have, he could have been in the basement. You know, he could have been getting wine and, and, and that seemed to give her comfort. Okay. And, and definitely me comfort. And at some point I start talking about the pastry chef who was a woman that had just started working there, yeah. who was a coworker and I really liked her, but like we weren't close. Right. And I just remember when Maggie and I got off the phone, Maggie said, I really hope they can find your friend, Heather. And I hung up and I thought, well, I mean, why did she say that? Because like, did I start talking about this woman, Heather? I, I clearly did. Like I, right. you know, I don't know if that was to stop talking about Jeffrey, you know, it was just very, I remember thinking for so many years, you are the strangest person. You act so strange. Like you say things that don't make any sense. You say things that are not you. And it was true. It was true. I was so strange. But that is, you know, it's interesting. My mom died suddenly. And even though there was a part of me that really locked into like the activities that needed to happen, I found a lot of comfort in having like a task to do. I was checking in with other people and my friend Susan, who's a master trauma therapist, she would just, her response to me almost every time was like, you are traumatized. Like you are not thinking straight. You are traumatized. And it really annoyed me. Cause I was like, shut up. I'm getting everything done. When I went back and looked at those texts later, I was like, oh my God, what am I even talking about in these texts? Like I thought I had a grasp 
And every once in a while I'd be talking to someone and, you know, you can see when like, you're not really making sense anymore and people's eyes are glazing over or, but a lot of what I teach people, you know, people come in and they say like, I can't remember anything in any sort of sequential order, or I have no, I have poor word recall since 9-11, or I haven't been able to eat or sleep or like, I have no sex drive, or sometimes my hair is falling out or my skin is, and And honestly, all of that is driven by the shock of the experience. And it doesn't have to be something as dramatic as 9-11. You know, certainly like even if your grandmother's dying of cancer, your your brain will still respond. You know, we're wired to respond to death as a very big threat because it's the biggest threat. But in the experience that you are in, you're trying to like take in a tsunami of information that we, you know, if it had just been a plane crash, we've heard of plane crashes before. What you're taking in is like, you know, destruction at a level that nobody can really understand. I'm curious about, I've spoken to survivors of like mass casualties, mass shootings, people whose, um, loved ones died in 9-11 or the earthquake in Haiti. And one thing that each one of them has said to me that I'm curious about for you was some energy and some feeling around other people owning the story too. For some people, that's really comforting. You know, I had all of these colleagues that were also grieving. Sometimes, like in the case of 9-11, where it's like, it's an American problem. You know, it's like something that happened to America. People had a lot of like frustration around not feeling validated about their actual tangible face and named loss. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious when you, when you write about it or think about it now, do you have any of that? Like is it important to you to let people know that this was part of your life? If it comes up, do you not want anyone to ask you about it? Does it feel frustrating when, I don't know, somebody who was just in college says, oh, this is what I was doing at 9-11 as if it really impacted them because of course it did. And, you know, you're thinking I lost 85 colleagues. Like, does it, does it have any impact on you in that way? I don't think so. And I will say, because really 9-11 impacted the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, because of my occupation, anytime a winemaker from Italy, Germany, France, Australia, you know, Chile came to New York City, they wanted to come to Windows on the World. Yeah. So, So I was in constant, you know, email was just kind of coming around, but I had so many emails from, from friends all over the world who were just heartbroken. Devastated. Yeah. And, and, and when you think about windows on the world as a community, you know, we had people from Egypt and Morocco and, and Korea, you know, we had so many people from all over the world who worked at windows and they were personally affected. And then I think about, you know, in my small town in Eastern North Carolina, you know, both of my uncles were Presbyterian ministers 
but he opened the doors of his church that Tuesday morning and just let people come in. And I, I think if you were in California, you were as scared and as as if you were, you know, at the bottom of the world trade center, getting ready to go up, you know, we were all impacted in our own way. I mean, for that to happen. And, and I think for other countries to see that the United States was vulnerable in that way, you know, everybody was, was feeling loss and grief. And, you know, what's, what I feel so strongly about is the people who come to me who have had loss on a totally different level and have said, I just, I just wanted to have a conversation with you. Yeah. You know, and, and that is, wow, what a a gift and a responsibility, you know? Um, I get that. And I think, I think part of what that is, is like, I don't know, it's like hearing a native tongue or something like, you know, you know, when someone has been through something and that you can come to them with your unpolished mess and they will see you and hear you and understand, because I think it is such a a shocking, you know, integrating the loss of some, someone or something that made you feel like yourself, that made you understand who you were in the world when you lose yourself and you go to speak to people who are like, yeah, I, I know I lost myself too. Uh, yeah. Did I, did I answer that in, in, Oh yeah. I mean, essentially what I heard you say was you felt connected to everybody. And I think, I think it kind of goes, loss can kind of go either way when it has like a public element to it. I think sometimes it can be something that you feel comforted, but oftentimes what I've heard from folks is like, they really felt minimized by it because they had a very specific story And you said something a minute ago that I wanted to follow up on about wanting to get back to New York. I mean, that was something that when I was in DC, there were folks here uh, with me who wanted to get back to New York. And I was like, why would you want to go where there's, and yet every person that had ever lived in New York, that's what I heard them say. It was that like, they needed to be back feet on the ground, breathing the air of their home country their hometown, their home place. Did you get back? I'm not sure if flights were even running a week no. later, but I, I got in a, I rented a car. Yeah. Right back. I remember going across the George Washington bridge and there was a huge American flag. Yeah. I remember um, that. And all of a sudden, you know, it, interestingly, I, I mean, was patriotic, I guess, but like had never felt patriotism yeah. in the way I felt it when you know, when I drive across that bridge, I mean, I remember then, you know, going to a Yankees game and like singing the star spangled banner, you know, buying a pair of socks that had American flags. on. Yeah. It was kind of crazy. And that, that was very interesting to me that I, yeah. that was one of the feelings that I was having. Yeah. Well, and I, I, again, I think that was something that was shared. I think that happens in a collective trauma is that you sort of collect into your trauma. And so, you know, people want to wear their New York fire department t-shirt because that, you know, that those are who were were impacted and everybody has their local fire department. And, 
just out of curiosity, how, when did you know that your boyfriend was fine? Did that take a while or? It, it took, a, I think an hour. I found okay. in touch with him and, and the next morning or sorry, the next day he took a train to Baltimore. My mother and I drove up to Baltimore and picked him up and he came home with me until the following week when we drove back together. It's interesting because my, my oldest child is 14 and, you know, we, we try to like tell the stories that are the stories without protecting them, you know, to the point of lying. And I have relatives in New York and we talk about it. And my daughter often is like, so what happened again? Like, where were you and how did that happen? And it's interesting how often my mind chooses to forget the hours of unknown chaos, right? Like, you know, we, there were planes crashing places and in DC, there was all this miscommunication about maybe there was a bomb here. You know, I still sometimes I'm like, did this really happen? Was there really a tank? There was right. You know, guys with machine guns, things that like, I think because it was really terrifying, my mind evaporates or questions and is sort of like, wait, did that happen? Was that? And I remember talking to my mother, getting through to my mom because I had relatives in New York and she was able to say everyone's accounted for. But I remember her saying to me, stay safe. And I was like, mom, I live three blocks from the Capitol. Like, what do you think is safe? There's no safe. There's nowhere to go either. We can't get out of here. Like DC was locked down. And I think sometimes part of the collective trauma is being with people who also have their own series of like wacko memories and things that, you know, their brain didn't code it properly, but they were in the moment and also, you know, afraid Mm -hmm. because I think we think of it as, you know, a plane hit and a plane hit. And actually it was hours and hours. And for some people, days and weeks and months where they were in a space of fear around, are we going to be okay? Is it okay? Are we safe? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, kind of a lot. So did you stay in New York? Did you immediately leave? I mean, you had. No, I was hell bent and determined to stay in New York. Yeah. Part of the the build back. And, you know, I, when we were first talking about, you know, grief as an action. Yeah. My um, action was to be as busy as possible. Yeah. And so I took a job opening up a, ho- a restaurant and a hotel in Times Square. Yep. A management position, which was possibly the worst decision I've ever mm. made. Not mm. mentally or emotionally ready to do that. And I know now, you know, I mean, I didn't start therapy until I was 40, which is a huge mistake, but that you know, it can even go back to my childhood when my parents divorced, right? Like yep. I filled my days, my hours, mm-hmm. my minutes with activity of some sort. So to not feel the feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked about this on this podcast. That is a way, mm-hmm. right? So when we're talking to people about like, how did you manage these horrible feelings? I don't mean how did you manage them in like a Oprah magazine kind of way. I mean it like literally how'd you survive the feelings and hustling the hell out of your life is one way to do it. It'll catch up to you, yeah. but 
you know, I'm not, I don't criticize, you know, I have, I've had people come on and say, I ate and drank my way through my grief. There are ways that probably have less boomerang effect to come and get you later, but hustling is one way maybe of not grieving, but also as part of the grieving process, which is, I'm just going to delay it. I'm going to delay it until later. And I think there sometimes can be some wisdom in the delay. Like I'm not ready to sit down and feel all these feelings. I'll, I'll go under with them. So you stayed in New York, tried to go right back into the restaurant world. And it sounds like it was really hard and triggering. It was a cluster. I mean, it was a complete cluster. And, and Mark (laughs) said to my husband, I cannot do this. Like, yeah, I would wake up crying, Oh God! you know, and I couldn't even like waking up crying and just, you know, I remember getting off the subway at Port Authority to um, walk and all of a sudden I am just sobbing hysterically as I'm walking down the street. It just, it it was just such a, a wild time for me. And I, I do think there's a reason that I was there and not at home where my parents were hovering. Yeah. Also didn't want anybody talking to me about like, Yep. I just was, I mean, I was so angry. Like, so yeah. angry. I remember somebody saying, sending a mass email out and saying, Inez is not clocking in and um, clocking in and out. Now it was a salary position. Right. I had never clocked in and out as soon as I became salaried at Windows. Right. I didn't think I needed, people needed to know if I, you know, where I right. went. And I was like, I had these horrible feelings about yeah. this human resources person who was just doing her job. And I am just thinking really bad things. Yeah. And so I, I said to Stephen, I can't do this anymore. And he was like, I don't think I can either. The, the, but, but again, like even the way you talk about it now sounds like it's a surprise to discover that after your whole world was literally obliterated, you had some extreme emotional reaction. But when we think about it, like that is fully appropriate walking down the street and bursting into tears because 85 of your coworkers and your livelihood was blown up by terrorists. That seems like right on the money. But I think because we don't do such a great job of, of like, just sort of explaining what it means to integrate traumatic events into our lives. We look and we're like, oh, well, Inez is really having a hard time. Like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen to her? <laughs> you know, and and I like also how you threaded it into your, you know, also about your parents, because I, because again, from the trauma world, we do have these ways and I am, I'm almost distracting myself with this thought because also they use this in business management. They, they use these personality tests and part of what they're doing in that personality test is getting a track on like, how much funk do you have in your personality and how reactive are you going to be as a manager when there's trauma in your childhood and parents getting divorced counts as a trauma. I mean, it's totally destabilizing and it makes most children feel unsafe. But there are some things that we know about what generally then can mean that when something bad happens again later, 
you're kind of more susceptible to that taking you out, you know, pulling the rug under out from underneath you. And I just, it really mystifies me that we look at that and we're like, wow, she's having a hard time instead of, yeah, no, that seems exactly what we would expect considering what happened, right? That, that you needing to get the F out of Dodge and start somewhere else and maybe, you know, not try to work in a restaurant for a while, that that might be a really good loving suggestion. And I love you talking about how angry you feel because I really relate to that. I was angry all the time after my mom died. I was angry at everyone. The closer someone was to me, the more likely I was going to like chew their head off. But I think, I think of anger as sort of like the reactive bubbles of a, of a like soda, you know, it's popping up the top, but the content is in the glass. And it's the sorrow, right? Like, I don't want you to tell me that I'm not doing a good enough job because do you have any idea what it's like for me to even get up in the morning because I cry all day because this terrible thing happened. Now I'm sitting in my grief. And at the same time, feeling guilt about crying because I was one of the fortunate ones. You know, I was, there was a lot of that. Like I didn't want to tell people how sad I was yeah, and how angry I was because I thought, you know, I'm lucky. I think there's a ton of that. And you have this chapter in your book. I think there's a ton of that with the pandemic. I think a lot of people are really struggling, like deep, dark, hard struggle, but because nobody died and they didn't lose their job, they are keeping that deep, deep darkness in, you know, behind their zoom screen, they are not feeling entitled to talk about how difficult this is. And I know you said this, and I mentioned to you, I talked to Jessica Dulong who wrote saved by the seawall about the nine 11 boat lift, but she, she talked about the pandemic being really, really triggering and being surprised by sort of how much unprocessed or residual grief there was. So can you tell me a little bit about what these past couple of years have brought up for you or how they contributed to your writing? Yeah, I will say in particular restaurants for me because of the loss of wind, you know, the people who died, obviously there was huge loss, but what a lot of people don't understand is plenty of people lived who I never saw again. Yeah. So I, I grieved the loss of seeing some of my, you know, favorite people knowing they were alive, but just knowing also never have that relationship. You know, I'll never be that close with them. And, you know, the pandemic for everyone, but, you know, with restaurants closing immediately, you know, because they had to, And knowing that, you know, especially in New York, people were going to go back to their respective countries or their respective states. And it was an end, right? That just was happening. And I felt that all over again. Yeah. The minute March, for for North Carolina, it was March 15th, I think. Yeah, we were the 13th. Yeah, right. That there's no, this is not the fault of anyone. 
Right. right? Like we look at businesses closing and we're like, oh, they must've done bad business. That's why they're closing. Right. And when you, you know, I drove down into DC the other day and I was like, oh my God, that's closed. Like, and that's closed to me. These were institutions. Yeah. But of course the very first thing in the pandemic that everybody stopped doing was getting food in social place. I mean, going out to eat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the other, the other piece of that, you know, and just to kind of go forward is when you say people are really struggling, like for me, it's dark right now. Yeah. We're going into year two and the, the assistance has dried up. That's right. You know, it's, we are worn down. Yeah. Right. You know, with, with nine 11, after nine 11, everybody went into build back mode. That's right resilience we're gonna fight against terrorism right we're 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 here for it and now I don't know I mean I can only speak for myself but I am emotionally exhausted yeah whereas 9-11 our country came together yeah we are not coming together I mean it I've never been in such a divisive climate and, and I'm part of it, by the way. I mean, I'm very <laughs> in my, in, in what I believe is right, right now, it, it, I'm part of the divider who, who would have thought, right. But yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's such a, a good, period. it's, it's a such a good period. point that you made because I remember that, right. Like I remember the iconic picture of George Bush, like in the rubble with the hat and the flag and the that, that, you know, if we were going to script a Hollywood movie, that it was going to have a groundswell of music and people were, they were going to New York to stay in hotels and to spend money in the city. And, you know, it was one terrible, you know, footprint in a small space that we were going to correct and eradicate. And then we were going to fight, you know, all the bad guys and all the places but what's interesting, you know, my, my family and I traveled across the country, actually, before vaccines, we just got in our SUV and, and drove across while the kids were doing school. And we would drive across state lines. And it would be like over there, you know, you could walk over there to that gas station, but over there, they're all masked up or they're not masked up. And over here, it's the opposite. And people were, are very strident in their belief system. So that notion of like, how do we coalesce it and how do we fight against it? I mean, I had a, I had a um, call this, this week with a, a reporter from the financial times named Simon Cooper. And he just like very casually, he lives in Spain. He's very international, but he, he was like, yeah, you know, the U S 40% of you aren't vaccinated. And that's like three times the rate of any other country. He was like, you know, France was like, they were like, we're never going to do vaccines. Mm-hmm. And now they're just 10% not vaccinated. And I, I mean, it was one of the, it was like taking a world history class where I was like, whoa, we must seem fucking nuts to the rest of the world. It's well, and, and where I'm, where I am right now, we have a very low vaccination rate and no one will wear a mask. And so I couldn't believe the first week in January, my family traveled to Cancun for a week and we took mass transit most places we went and every single person on every bus we we rode had an N95 on, including us, right? Because 
Of course. But, but I, I got home and somebody said, how's Mexico? I was like, it's amazing. And they're like, anybody wearing masks? Everybody, everybody wore their masks. And, you know, I don't know what to say. I just don't, I don't understand, but I seek to understand and I seek to have the conversations, but it's very interesting. You know, the, the, the patriotism after 9-11 and I would call it patriotism when small businesses closed. I had, you know, people that were totally. so into like coming down and buying gift certificates who never ate at the restaurant, yep. buying beer at the brewery or buying merchandise at the brewery who, who don't drink. Like that was great. And then, then everything turned and it was like, you know, you, you believe in, I will call it social justice. I think you're crazy. And, and all of a sudden it's all crazy. Everything's crazy. And, and that's what, you know, I go back to for my feelings because I don't think I mentioned this as one of them, but after nine 11, I felt crazy. Yeah. I felt very crazy and I am feeling so crazy right now. Yeah. I get that. That, that, and actually I I appreciate you saying that because I think I think there's a lot that goes into crazy, but I think part of it is like, I don't, I I feel isolated and alone, right? Like, I think that's part of it. I think part of what we mean is I can't connect and how do I connect? And so just, I know, because I read your bio and I looked up information about you, but what, so tell folks where you are now in your life in terms of like restaurant work and, you know, all that stuff. I run a brewery in Eastern North Carolina, pretty much doing all of our wholesale accounts. So we're distributed in the States of North and South Carolina. And one of my friends who has a couple of restaurants in DC, he's gotten our our beer a few times because, you know, DC is the wild, wild West in terms of alcohol. This is exactly the truth. We personally love it. (laughs) Our weirdo regulations about who can ship to where and yeah. Right. But my, my husband runs our restaurant, which will turn 20 in oh, wow. October of this year. But I'm full-time at the brewery, which will turn six next month. But uh, yeah, so I, again, one day we can talk about traumatic stress of hospitality workers. Yeah. Because, holy cow. I, I had to get out. The land of no boundaries. And anyway, so I, I find myself schlepping beer and, and doing you know, and, and trying very hard to make sales, which is a humbling experience also. Yeah. But, yeah, so Tarboro, North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina. It's real. I think there's also with the pandemic, you know, this maybe is always true and it's certainly true. I work with lots of people who, you know, had healthy adults in their lives who just died from COVID. And I just, my family and I all just had COVID having had all the vaccines available to us. And I've I'm not going to say I've never been so sick in my life because I do think there were two other times in my life when I had actual things going on that were not virus related where I was sicker, but I've never had, I've, I've just, you know, even now still, I can't really exercise and I still have this thing in my chest and, and we're two, two and a half weeks in, but I, it is, I can understand how perfectly healthy adults ended up dying. It's, it, it still feels to me like you know, a completely stunning, confusing aspect that, you know, people could be taking preventative measures and aren't. 
And it is, you know, I say this really seriously and sort of mockingly at the same time, like I do get to a point where I'm rocking back and forth in the corner about like, did we ruin the world for our kids? Are we ever going to be able to come out of this? And I think part of part of what I'm trying to advocate is not to not to collect any more energy inside your system than you need. And so all of the grief, whether it's the grief about your children aren't going to have the college experience that you expected them to have, or you lost your colleague or your business is gone, or you couldn't have a wedding. I mean, the, the amount of loss is so profound. And I think part of what this podcast is trying to do, and I'm trying to do in general is just say, it's an energy that you're carrying in relation to something real that has happened you got to move the energy through your body. So we've talked a little bit about writing. We've talked a little bit about sort of getting the anger out. Do you have other tools that you are, you know, that you use? Like, do you cook? Do you still wine taste and enjoy wine? Like, are there other things that are kind of about taking the energy? Because I think what people think is when I'm sad, I have to cry. And then that's grief work. And what I say is it doesn't have to be sadness. It could be any kind of reactivity or tension. It could be intentional. I'm going to sit down and think about my sister this afternoon, or just I'm finding myself a little edgy. I think some of the edge might be grief. I'm going to go for a run. What other ways do you sort of, you know, be with either the crazy energy or the, or the reactive energy that feels even more concretely and specifically about loss? Um, you know, my dad has always told me, if you're ever feeling sad, go and do something nice for somebody else. Oh, I love that. And you can really, you know, shift. And it doesn't have to be buy them a gift. It yeah. Take their paper all the way up to their door or take their trash can out to the curb. I love to bake cookies. Uh, and I love to take them to little children. Ah. Uh, um, or elderly people. I'm obsessed with elderly people so much. And and they have so much wisdom. So it's kind of taking an outlet that is, you know, you're following a recipe, you're making something sweet and and then you're you're gifting it. So I love to do that. And then I'm a huge uh, believer in yoga. So every day I think um last year 340 days. Um, wow 26 of 26 I'm trying to do 365 and and these aren't long like they can be anywhere from 12 minutes to an hour and 10 right just depends on the day but just to get that that breathing work and I think where the confusion really can come in is like when you're watching someone who is appropriately walking down the street crying because something terrible just happened People who love you and care about you are like, well, we wish that wasn't happening. We wish Inez wasn't walking down the street. And also like, when should she not be doing that? How do we know when she's not doing okay? And grievers get pissed. We're like, how dare you? What I am doing is normal. But what the people who are asking the questions and are being accused of being critical are not saying is like, yeah, but my brother's friend, something bad happened and they haven't left the house in 12 years. There are people who experience the trauma and end up traumatized in their grief. And we just do not do a good job of 
saying to the world, we know a little bit who we might expect that to be. I was deeply traumatized by my mother's death. I had terrible PTSD. I ended up going to the same inpatient treatment facility that I send my own clients, but I had childhood death that was never spoken about again. I had, you know, traumatic loss in my childhood that really wasn't well resolved despite all my effort in therapy. So we're not talking about necessarily preventing the trauma. We're talking about supporting it once it happens. And, and I think that to speak to what you said, a lot of people think there should be a time limit on grief. Yeah. And, and if not a time limit, they'll say, well, she was fine last week. Now this week she's crying. I mean, what's up with that? Well, <laughs> they're triggers. They're yeah. Triggers. And, you know, it, it's interesting, like, especially where I'm from or, or the family, it was always kind of like, we're too blessed to be stressed. You know, <laughs> we're too fortunate. We have a roof over our head. We have food on our tables. We shouldn't be sad, you know, and it's, it's really so unhealthy. Well, it's, it, it, it's a imaginary sense of some kind of like goodness, right? Like the prosperity Bible or something where it's like, if you do good things, good things will happen. Like that's not how the world works. And if that was the way the world works, no children would get leukemia. Come on. Like we know better than that. But I do think, <clears throat> I do think that there, even when you just said a second ago, like, you know, it, there is no timeline hundred percent true. I think of, I think of, and I've said this so many times, but I think of grieving as something that we become, we're a griever now, the same way that you're a parent, you know, you just are that now it will be a part of your life forever. However, I have worked with some folks because I'm a trauma therapist who something happens, they get triggered and they don't come out of their house again for three months. And it is about grief, but like they used to come out of their house. So isn't that an indicator? And so I feel like there's a conversation that we are sophisticated enough to have to say, well, what are you going to do with that worry? Because we're, our concern is if I go and knock on the door and say, are you okay? Should you be in your, you know, should you still be in your pajamas that the person who is in the experience is going to feel criticized, Mm -hmm. but that's just a communication issue. How can we teach people to show up with love and say, listen, I don't know anything. I don't even know your experience at all, but I, you looked like you were doing okay. You don't look like you're doing okay now. Can I help without with, you know, being able and also priming the grievers, like, listen, people who are coming have learned now, not to, not to push on you, but actually to say, you tell me about you, how you doing? But we haven't built that culture around grief and loss yet. We haven't, we haven't given the agency to the grievers and to people to make mistakes. So instead everybody's like, well, it's awkward. I'll just wait. I'll just wait them out. I'm sure, I'm sure they'll, I'm not going to call them now, but I'm sure I'll see them in November. We're not willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Situation and feel the discomfort of someone else's pain. You know, we'll start talking right over it or but you know what, how happy were you when this happened? You know, how, exactly. How, how glad are you that you have a healthy daughter, you, you yeah. know, instead of just like, just saying, I don't know what to say. So I'm just going to sit here and listen. 
And, and what I will say just for the folks who are listening, cause I say it all the time, I include myself in those ranks of Absolutely. people who say the wrong Guilty. thing. And yeah. part of the reason I love the TV show, Ted Lasso is that particularly the character Keely, she does stuff. And then she's like, she'll call her boyfriend Roy up and go like, oh, that was a shitty thing I did. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And I feel like, you know, there's room for that in grief and loss, which is like, I don't know. I got awkward and I started talking too much and I said stupid shit and I couldn't stop the words from coming out of my mouth. And I'm really sorry. How can I do better next time? Because it is awkward, but there's a lot of stuff. And the example I always use is like, sex is awkward too. And we don't tell people like, well, it's awkward. So we'll talk to you in November. We're like, oh no, it was awkward. How are we going to make that less awkward? Right. You know, cause we see the sort of belief and the motivation. And, and I think you're right that, you know, we have a, a grief culture problem. I sort of feel like whether we're pulling the donkey or pushing the donkey, it's going to have to change because, you know, we're up to nearly 8 million people who are grieving in this country that we're not grieving two years ago. So that's 8 million connected to just losses around COVID alone. And that's an extraordinary number. And what happens, as you know, if we don't help people learn how to carry and process the loss is they'll be sitting at a bar drinking, they'll be raging and fighting. They will be handing trauma down to their children. And, you know, we don't, it doesn't have to be that way. So I really, really appreciate you talking to me about this today, talking about your experience. So openly surviving the hardship of that and being really honest about the feeling crazy today, because I'm, I am really with you. If you're interested in reading Inez's book, you can let me know. I have a couple of copies. I'm not going to promise that I'll send you one, but I have some and I, I always send out some books. And if folks want to know more about you, book you for their podcast, hear more about your experience, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm pretty much invested in Instagram only. Yeah. <laughs> and it's at Inez Ribostello. It's very, very uh, unique. Perfect. First and last name. He's easy. So I will put that in the show notes for anybody that's looking to contact you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. And I hope we stay connected. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Megan. Thanks much. Have a great day. And thank you so much. Take good care. Bye-bye.